You are Living in the End Times with Amos and X, a podcast about theology, theory, hijinks, pranks, and everything and nothing in between.
everything that keeps it together is falling apart I got this thing that I consider my only art of fucking people over Good to see you. Yes, how you doing today, Amos? Good. On the aftermath of a uber rare early October quasi blizzard. That's right. It was October tenth. I think we had quite a bit of snow here in North Dakota. And my friend and Facebook acquaintance in Toronto was posting that it was thirty-one degrees Celsius. Well, it was negative one Celsius here. <laughs> so they had tropical weather. We have a snowstorm, and they're north of us. That's right. And so literally the world is turning upside down. <laughs> that is correct. Um, on the heels of uh, crushing UN climate report that came out, <clears throat> um, the first version of it, uh, or the headline version, was that by 2040, uh, conservatively, if we're expecting 1.5 degrees Celsius global temperature rise, we're in for massive social upheaval on unimaginable scales. Uh, then the second wave of headlines was saying, well, it's more like 2030 is more realistic. Great. Which means we have 12 years to radically turn things around or the climate will radically transform society for us. Uh, the latter likely being... I think we should basically assume that that's what's going to happen mm -hmm. in order to begin to mobilize uh, at a collective level. Right. No, I don't disagree. And um, so it's it's funny you mentioned that the very same week up here, there was a, a trial of some folks, some valve turner folks in Minnesota. I forget the specific small town. And they were making this sort of um, self-defense argument for in front of a judge and jury. Could you explain what the situation was? Oh, I don't have specific details other than um, these uh, environmentalists were, and there's several of them all around the around the country, or at least up in this part of the world where we, we, lot, we have a lot of oil pipelines. And what they're doing is they're you know cutting the chains, breaking into the the sites at which um, the locked-up fenced sites at which these these uh, pipelines um, have have a valve or an on-off switch, right? They're breaking in, turning it off, essentially turning off the flow of oil. Um, and then, of course, getting arrested, so in this act of civil disobedience. And so these folks went to trial, pled not guilty, and ultimately, or if they pled guilty, it was the sort of self-defense argument saying we're, we're at a point where we need to act in this way such as to defend ourselves against the corporations and, and others who are sort of literally acting in ways that are going to result in death for us or the planet or whatever. And the, the judge and jury accepted that argument, which is the first time that has happened, the self-defense argument in defense of, again, um, environmental civil disobedience and law-breaking, essentially. Was that in a federal court or Minnesota? I think it was just Minnesota. So I imagine it'll go to a higher court, and we'll see what happens. But Depending on how they can charge it out, I don't know if they can, though. Like, they would have to find another law. which is, So it's just, that's a good sign. Right, um, I agree. <clears throat> so there's some hope, I guess, is kind of what I'm getting at, um, in spite of the the very bleak uh, reality that we're likely looking at uh, per the report that you mentioned. Right. So um, the the 2030 number is still, I st I think that's still conservative, unfortunately, um, given some of the other reports that have come out this year, such as uh, the I think the the shortest 
the shortest timeline I saw was five years. Five years from 20, it must have been five years from 2018, uh, could be a point at which we, we enter a tipping point of feedback loops where if ocean currents shift, they cannot predict the feed the subsequent uh, feedback loops and sh shifting climates all over the globe. Now, uh, Chris Hedges has recently written one of his sort of moralizing yet good uh, journalistic books, uh, America, The Farewell Tour. And so I've been listening to some of his lectures regard or interviews regarding it. Um, he he's talking about how the climate could change so radically that some scientists are saying that it's possible that we could see temperature rises uh, like it could mimic the planet of Venus, which is, I think, 800 degrees on the ground. That's a problem. Uh, <laughs> yeah, correct. Now, obviously, there these are those are speculations, but probably speculations grounded in empirical data that these could be outcomes. And so we're facing... Um, an imminent threat at the very, very least to this particular stable climate way of life and everything that depends on it. So <laughs> in the face of this apocalyptic moment, um, I think what, what we've been, well, what, what I've been pondering is the degree to which if, if we can intervene, how do we intervene and what does that intervention look like potentially? Uh, Slavoj Žižek wrote a new book about called Like a Thief in Broad Daylight, Power in the Era of Post-Humanity, where he's, I'm only to the, <clears throat> through the first, you know, there's like three chapters, and the first chapter is about where we stand now. Um, in the prologue, he's talking about how, like to your point about the the Minnesota courts, there have been cities, counties, maybe states in the U.S. who have pushed back against this massive corporate dominated political tendency such that the Republican party has been taken over by, this isn't what Zizek's claiming, but I'm just saying the, 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 this form of, I mean, to call it right-wing extremism is to kind of insult the right. Like, uh, the, and not that I want to give them any credit, but I'm saying to stage how extreme the Republicans are, um, we need to understand that there's there's a conscious effort to destroy humanity. I mean, it's gone beyond a byproduct. So, and Trump, <clears throat> I think one of the values of Trump's insanity, at public meaning like his insane behavior publicly, is that the they're so he's his regime is you know ripped the veil off like we talked about last time of public decency, etc. But also just the idea, the feigned ignorance of corporations slash the the state in the face of these threats to national national security, global food security, um, all life on Earth, etc., such that prior to this IPCC report and the UN report predicting you know massive upheaval in the next ten to twenty years. Um, Buried in this, I can't remember the report, but basically the Trump administration admitting they figured we have like seven years left. And therefore, 
and that basically we're fucked. So therefore we should keep burning fossil fuels because it doesn't make any difference. Um, that <coughs> that's just straight up terrorism. Uh, you know, Chomsky goes to great lengths to articulate how the U S acts as a terrorist state, um, you know, bombing, just for example, bombing Yemen for a decade uh, or however long it's been supporting the Saudi war in Yemen. Um, all of the, all of the many military conflicts we're involved in that are just uh, killing people and to attempt to maintain a grip on power globally. Um, with the climate stuff, though, it's a much more direct form of terrorism. It's m cl more akin to something like ISIS, <clears throat> ISIL, whatever, who are just openly saying this is why we're doing what we're doing and fuck you. That's Trump's attitude toward climate change or his administration's attitude toward climate change. And so what we see then is uh, within a week after this report, Trump just openly denying climate change again to the point of saying, oh, I think the climate's doing, could be doing great. Uh, it, you know, flying in the face of all empirical data to the contrary in a scientific consensus, which is, you know, scientific consensuses are rare, especially with moving parts. So the, this scientific consensus is significant, uh, extra significant for that reason. And as was pointed out in a New York Magazine article yesterday um anybody who's been paying attention to climate change seriously is not surprised by these numbers it's only that the scientists have decided to stop engaging in conservative estimates and just to follow the conclusions of their own data to its end and say that openly and as clearly and loudly as possible um <clears throat> so trump's like tripling down on this by yesterday as Hurricane Michael descends on the southeast United States, decides not even to cancel his rally and to press on as though this isn't happening. And I think, you know, I'd written something on Facebook today or, you know, earlier this morning about how um, <clears throat> one of the problems with the moral outrage surrounding Trump from the left is that by doing it, if we take seriously that Trump's incompetent and inept, uh, we have to then draw the conclusion that if that's actually true, if that's what we think, we have to stop expecting him to behave better because it's not going to happen. If he's truly inept, he truly can't do it. And I think he is inept, but I think he's inept largely because he's so boxed in in D.C. Like, why hire your kids who have no experience? Why hire these sort of like weird consigliere figures of... Um, you know, or these Cretans like Bannon and Stephen Stephen Miller, Colin, <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, I can't I, like you know just the the whole Scaramucci debacle, which of course was very funny. But um, why choose these people instead of just like sort of regular suit and tie DC types who could at least massage a lot of what's happening better? It's because nobody will work with Trump. Um, so the effect of this, is, and I'm not trying to bail Trump out of anything. He's doing this intentionally and intentionally aligning himself with Paul Ryan's agenda because, you know, and by Paul Ryan's agenda, I just mean the Koch brothers agenda, the corporate, <clears throat> the Cretinous corporate blow up the earth agenda. Uh, literally that sort of perspective 
lends itself to these insane displays um, where Trump has seemingly resigned himself to just being this clown and then letting letting the state apparatus self-destruct via these policies that destroy you know one of the arguments to make the most like reactionary argument for something like social security or medicare or medicaid would be if you keep people dependent on the state and you control the state apparatuses then you then you still have power over the population um but their perspective is destroy it all and this like fanciful like truly delusional version of libertarianism where there just is no state. Right. And <clears throat> as a result, Trump sort of boxed himself into these, all he has left are these crazy displays and these rallies. And I think the reason for these rallies is it's just so he can get, um, what we might call narcissistic supply. And I don't, I, I want to make very clear. I don't care or know if Trump has a personality disorder or personal level. I don't, that's irrelevant to me because when something's happening in public, we can't trust that that's, you know, that it goes all the way down to the man as it were. Um, but the, the constant backpedaling and shifting sand of what he says versus how it's responded to all of these sorts of things, he just seems to be holding, he seems to be playing politics as though it's a personal game. And I think that should, you know, as much as it enrages the left, the left unfortunately plays his game by treating him as a figure worthy of outrage in the sense that not that people shouldn't be angry or respond to what's happening, but that he's an unable to do anything that he wants to get done more than likely, except, and this is what, where the difference is when he goes abroad and he's doing foreign policy, he is... He's wielding, he's wielding a big stick. He's not speaking softly, but he's wielding a big stick. And we can argue about whether or not that works, but I think it's important to note that like domestically, he can't get away with anything anymore. The Republicans have turned on him, <clears throat> even though they're doing his bidding. I think the Kavanaugh debacle sort of demonstrates how the Republicans were forced to defend this guy that they probably didn't want to defend, that they probably knew was a bad choice, but it went through anyway. And he, he got nominated, or he got confirmed anyway, because what else are they going to do? So it was sort of strange tit for tat. Um, but if the left seriously doesn't think that Trump is up to the job, then <clears throat> they need to figure out ways to push back. And the only way to beat an opportunist like that, somebody who doesn't care if he looks like a clown, somebody who doesn't care if what he says is true or not from one day to the next from one minute to the next, switching positions all the time, is to become as ruthlessly opportunistic as Trump, to start exploiting fissures of power. I think the the Kavanaugh hearings and the way that people were pushing back against that, I think that's a good start. Um, I think people showing up at the Yale Club and talking about eat the rich or whatever they were saying, as well as showing up at the Supreme Court building, at senators' offices, all that stuff. Do all that stuff and organize solidarity you know <clears throat> solidarity unions around feminism around um medicare for all around whatever and then just push at every point that we can find use social media use um physical civil disobedience use online civil disobedience use um like whatever people find themselves able to do leak as much as possible in you know 
infiltrate and leak everything. Uh, I think that's the only way forward, but it, it requires just dropping this act, uh, and of all this pearl clutching, uh, and throwing and hand wringing about how bad Trump is. Okay, we get it. If you believe that, stop treating him like a king. Stop treating him like royalty, and he'll be unable to act as such. Because what's happened as a result is, <clears throat> I and I'm, I shouldn't. Say, I don't mean to say that everything the left's done has not been effective. I think it has handcuffed Trump significantly. However, it's not rolling. It's not pushing back against the policies as well. It's only pushing back largely against a public face of power and the public face of power is a clown's mask. What are you going to do? You prank a clown and a clown wins. That's the issue. Um, so <laughs> if, if that's the situation we find ourselves in, which I think it is, we enter this week with these crazy, you know, like pretending a hurricane's not happening. Uh, Kanye in the White House, in the Oval Office, sort of calling Trump a racist, Trump laughing. And this, like, strange, surreal solidarity. A friend had pointed out, he's like, I know this has become cliche, but it's so dreamlike to watch this. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's, that's what happens in the apocalypse. Things become surreal. And I was like, if, this is, if that is cliche, then this is the new normal. So we're not going to go... Things will not get better. Things will continue to get worse until the left decides to figure out how to take power. Right. Um, and I'm. I don't know where they're gonna where they're gonna go from there because as we saw with as you mentioned the Kavanaugh hearing, there was. It's very likely that at least one person on, in the Democratic Party who did vote against was probably going to vote for one. Uh, Manchin did vote for this person and helped get him passed, and so I don't know if. Um, uh, and I don't know how you're defining the left or how we would define it here, but certainly the the folks in power, the Democrats, are are not, I think, going to be the face of that resistance. Um, and we've and we've seen plenty of examples of that. It's interesting that you mentioned the the clown thing because it's this whole week, Kanye in the White House and everything else. I, I mean, I suppose since Trump was elected, I can't I can't not think about um, Chris Nolan's Batman and and the Heath Ledger Joker and just all that sort of thing and how how that played out and how that ultimately resulted in the, um, I forget the name of the guy, Jim, is it Holmes? Uh, the Holmes shooting in the theater was dressed up as the Joker in this sort of surreal moment where people thought that was, this is in Colorado, they thought it was part of the show, right? Part of the event. Because they did it on opening night, no one's seen the movie. Exactly, right. And so you got this guy who looks like a Joker who does all this stuff and, uh, I mean, kills a bunch of people, of course. Um, and how that sort of thing... Um, Again, to us, we television viewers or Facebookers or otherwise, it seems like a film, right? Or it seems like it's something that's out of a movie, but it's it's not. And that's increasingly our reality is something that seems like it's from a film. Um, and I guess in the face of that, too, that's something I've been struggling with for a, a long time now is I, I don't know how to respond. You know, I don't know how to be – I don't know that I should feel angry because I think this is all fake in a lot of ways to the fake news point, And I don't know how to respond effectively – strategically um, to sort of resist this. Um, and it's very paralyzing in a lot of ways, which I suppose um, on some level is part of the point of the Trump administration to sort of disorient and paralyze mm -hmm. folks so they don't even know what to do. And it's effective, at least um, on, on many of us. Um, but so what should the left do then? Again, I don't, I don't have an answer, and I don't even know where to start a lot of the time. It's frustrating. 
yeah, I agree. Um, but I also, and to add to that, I guess, I think that's the starting point is not knowing what to do precisely because <clears throat> what we're offered as a, a solution to this is completely bankrupt. So, you know, the sort of mainstream, I mean, yeah, I guess I should define the left, but I, I was sort of intentionally leaving it ambiguous because I think the, I think the problems pervade both the democratic, you know, what, and to call a democratic party, the to even associate them with the left is sort of reactionary propaganda. Sure. They're center right party at best, but um, what's sort of like commonly accepted as if the Republicans are the right, the Democrats are the left. People who still maybe associate themselves with the Democratic Party, um, who consider themselves to be on the left as well. I'm, I guess I'm saying anybody who considers themselves to be on the left would qualify, whether that's a you know Marxist Leninist communist or uh, an anarchist or Democrat, Democrat yeah, DSA people or whatever. Um, <laughs> So the but the the solutions offered or the avenues for action offered tend to you know fall on you know, like quit complaining just voters whatever the fuck it is it's so stupid because we tried that in 2016 and we still got fucked out of Bernie so what are we supposed to yeah what what are we supposed to do I think there's I'm not saying there shouldn't people shouldn't act but I am saying people need to it, to to be compelled to act. As we are, because it's not that we're just told to like, shut up, shut up and vote, shut up and do this thing that I'm prescribing, whether or not I can make an argument for how it's going to change anything, um, is it's blackmail to get us to stop thinking as Zizek's, you know, often offered as a, as an analysis. And I think that that, that holds <clears throat> precisely because when we are allowed to stop and th I mean, I think the whole structure of neoliberal capitalism is grounded in that. Keep people desperate, scrambling for jobs, scrambling for hours, scrambling for money, scrambling for everything. Competing with each other. Yeah. Competing with each other, seeing themselves as entrepreneurs of the self, seeing their lives as business ventures, um, keeps people from being able to see alternatives to the system and alternative forms of organizing and action. Uh, <clears throat> It's not an accident that the humanities are being destroyed along with labor unions. Both of those places are historically where uh, the left has found bases of power to intellectually and strategically, um, the unions being the more, let's say, tactical, strategic, uh, militant side of things, and academia being the sort of wellspring of left thinking. Um, the that being though both of those things are being under heavy attack for decades and all but destroyed <laughs> in in practical terms meaning like you have phds living in people's garages making eighteen thousand dollars a year like making less money than people probably make at mcdonald's teaching college or whatever mm -hmm. you keep those people desperate enough they're not it's they're gonna have a hard time harder time saying what they want to say and the less confidence to be able to say it and keep a roof over their head literally um and so the, i think the first step is registering this as reality and that that's interestingly where i get a lot of pushback interpersonally if i bring up problems and just try to articulate those problems as such the pushback often is oh well that's the way it is or you know well, what are you gonna do or 
like they'll just like fight me on the idea of even acknowledging this as though it's some sort of moral failing. Well, if that's a moral failing, then bring it on. I could care less. Um, unless we start to think about these things differently, we're f- completely fucked because the future is not bright. As, if things continue as they are going, we you know now have the globe agreeing that this will this system will self-destruct one way or another in one form or another. We saw an 800 point stock market crash yesterday. And then today, another f- at least 500 points. I think at one point it was almost 700 points the dip went in addition to yesterday. The economy is not strong. The economy is propped up by fake money, by something called share buybacks, which were illegal until 1986. Share buybacks in- <clears throat> involve uh, with hyper low interest rates from central banks. The banks print money. They borrow it to in- institutional investors, meaning people with people who already have access, people who have billions of dollars and are allowed to borrow at almost 0% interest, whereas you go to a bank and try to get a car loan at 0.25% interest, that's not happening, even though that would be one way to stabilize the economy, but that's not happening. And so these companies buy get this cheaper free money, uh, buy back their own stocks, inflate the prices of the stock, split the stock, and then resell the stocks, and then keep doing this, yeah, it looks like a huge stock market rally as long as Trump's been in office. Um, and now we're starting to see the cracks because, <clears throat> as Max Kaiser says, you can't taper a Ponzi scheme. So eventually something happens where there's a credit crunch. The credit crunch now is going to be so massive that I'm not sure I'm not sure what will even survive, but be rest assured that if the left isn't mobilized to act, we're going to see 2008 all over again. So one of the effects of 2008 was the auto unions in order to keep the, basically the car companies threaten to move overseas, all production and the price paid for staying here was auto unions agreed to 50% wage cut across the board in some cases uh, that is going to get worse. They're going to try and wipe out all labor unions. They're going <clears> to, <throat> they'll probably try to do federal right to work, uh, assuming the Republicans stay in power, maybe even with the Democrats in power. It's hard to say during a crisis. Um, in any case, this tenuous moment that we're in will not last and it, things will only get worse. And my fear always with the left is the idea that things will get better. if they Once they get worse, the left, people will see the light and come around. That's not the case. It's been, it's an ideological battle. I think after 2008, you saw the rise of a certain kind of leftism and you saw a rise of a certain kind of corporate power vying for dominance over time. Um, that's not that's not a finished you know that's not a resolved question by any means but we shouldn't we have no right to assume that things are going to go well for us in the aftermath it's going to be extremely painful no matter what and if you couple that with all these like devastating hurricanes and climate shifts that we are already seeing just the beginnings of we can't assume that <clears throat> anything's going to go our way unless we force it to go our way so taking power in one way or another has to be part of the the strategy and when i say taking power i mean you know i'm i'm not a marxist leninist like i'm not a what's called a tanky on the internet but um there are 
moments in Lenin's thought that I think are important in one of Lenin's, you know, views or whatever ideas was that if, if the left isn't willing to, if communists aren't willing to engage in reformism, then we're just windbags. If we, if people are not ready for revolutionary struggle, then we need to try and take parliamentary power. Otherwise, how can we reach people? How can we, we just become windbags because we're just talking to ourselves. And I think there's a tendency on the left to do that. Uh, I think it's a failure. And as David Graeber thankfully pointed out, something that some of us have been talking about in private for years, the left doesn't want to win. Most people don't want to win. They prefer ideological purity. And I'm not talking about Democrats' accusations of ideological purity when when the progressive left in the U.S. is principled around $15 an hour, Medicare for all, free college. I'm talking about <clears throat> ideological purity on the left attacking other people on the left for trying to do anything, even if they don't agree with it. Yeah, so I've got, you know, I've got kids, obviously. And um, that's kind of what's the most frustrating is, you know, at this moment when I, I need to be acting, I need to be doing something um, to sort of step in and try to help help avert any potential catastrophe with the climate or the political situation or otherwise. And I, uh, again, to the to the point of Kanye in the White House, like, I don't even know how to respond to that. And I don't know what to do. And I'm the most depressed about that fact that um, I got, you know, I got a stake in it, genetically speaking. I mean, not that we, we don't all have that, but, and I don't know what to do for them. Um, and I don't, and I'm wondering if, if the left is going to start to come around. And I, as you pointed out, I think we've seen some of that recently, which is good. Um, but I don't know, because I, I just wonder, to your point about the ideological purity or the, just the uh, even uh, folks who aren't so pure, just not being sure how to act like myself or um, they're too depressed or otherwise to sort of get moving. I was at um, an, a November Fest party. It was not Oktoberfest. A November Fest party at a local person's uh, house a couple years ago, you know, college professors and so on with a bunch of other college types. And this is right after uh, Trump had won. So it was the end of November 2016. And we were all talking about that, obviously, and sort of frustrated to various degrees um, or confused or just wondering what, what's gonna, how this is going to shake out. Um, and I was trying to make the argument kind of, you know, kind of playing devil's advocate, but also honestly feeling like maybe this is, maybe this is the way out for the left or this is a solution, this election, because, um, you know, the left has been trying to change the state and destroy it, if you will, some of the more radical elements for decades and centuries and not being very successful, well, maybe this guy's the one to do it, right? Going to do it for us. And they're, you know, a lot, of, again, some of these college English professor types are like, no, that's crazy. What are you talking about? I hope not. But, you know, two years later, here we are. And I feel like this is, this guy is destroying everything, everything the left wanted to do. And he's pulling it off in a horrifying way, but he's accomplishing a lot of these things um, that the left has been trying to do uh, just in a you know a gentler way, and it's it's horrifying. And again, I don't I don't even again as a leftist then, how do I respond? Because some of this is happening for me, um, but of course it's it's happening in ways that are going to be pretty bad for most people. Right. So I I mean that's where <clears throat> where I you know earlier when I mentioned opportunism, um, ruthless opportunism in the face of Trump. I think. Right the way forward is to recognize that these breaks in reality that Trump's in inaugurating, if you will, are opportunities that the left should be exploiting. Right. And so how to best do that? We have to abandon, abandon the, the 
traditional view basically the 20th century left has to die all of these ideas about just a generalized tendency of protest and um pure trade unionism or whatever though all those things i i'm there's a place for all that and that needs to continue but that's sort of a baseline how do you how the question in the in the age of trump which is the age of reality t tv taking over reality and responding to itself as reality tv um, <clears throat> we need to get a little dirtier, uh, get our hands dirty around being willing to sort of play it out both sides of our mouths, you know, double dealing as, as hard as Trump is. So one thing, I think Bernie Sanders has been able to capitalize on this a little bit, um, just today. So yesterday, Trump, for, for some God knows why reason, decided to write a horrible op-ed in USA Today about the problems of Medicare for all. Now... Right. I think from a materialist perspective, in the sense of like materialism as the material effects of ideology, all this says to me as a as a communist is, oh, Trump's just teeing up, teeing this up for Bernie Sanders to just happy Gilmore, <laughs> right, five hundred yards down the down the green, and so <clears throat> what I mean by that is, of course, immediately thereafter, Bernie Sanders makes a, you know. A political ad, but it was just basically articulating all the lies in Trump's Medicare for All um, rant and pointing out, as we've pointed out on this show, 70% of Americans already support Medicare for All. And expanding that to everyone will only save the country money. And so now would Bernie Sanders have that specific platform to be able to say that specific thing to so many people? Had Trump not teed it up for him? It's hard to say. Um, do I think Trump's intentionally, you know, playing this 4D chess to like get the left in power? No, I don't, but it doesn't matter because it functions the same way. What Trump's intent is irrelevant. And I think all this psychoanalyzing of Trump is a real problem on the left too. The idea that somehow we can appeal to his, there was a scene in Mr. Robot where, um, Christian Slater's character, sort of the, the more ruthless militant type was they were they were deciding how to handle a certain situation tactically and his retort was never appeal to man's better nature he may not have one i think we should probably relate to trump in this way um <laughs> but that doesn't mean we can't capitalize on his fuck-ups and should be capitalizing on every single one of them this isn't a new story i'm not inventing this people have been saying this the whole time i've been saying it the whole time um Jimmy Dore has been saying it for years that Trump should be considered a gift to the left, that they should be capitalizing. Right. But they aren't. They've decided that the, the sort of, well, no, they haven't. I was going to say only the Democrats, but that's not true. The radical left hasn't done anything either. The radical left has fallen into this moralism against Trump that I think is crazy and stupid. And they all know how stupid and crazy it is and cynical because we were all pushing against Obama's horrific policies the whole time. But now Trump's some especially, you know, Trump is somehow especially evil. This is comic book land, like, you know, to your point. But I'm saying the media is painting it like a comic book. Mm -hmm. And so to buy into that logic <clears throat> and react to it in terms of heroes and villains is a, is a dangerous trend. So... Like Zizek says, the the um, falling back on moralism is a is proof of uh, a lack of politics. Like it's just a political failure to end up falling into moralism. And so one could make the argument that that was the right's problem for a long time was all this moralistic bullshit. 
uh, masked as real politic um, in the sense of like turning gay marriage into the some fight for providence when obviously once we have gay marriage it the society the only society only just gets better it's just less bullshit on the streets um because people gay um gay marriage should be legal is what i'm saying right uh <laughs> and so the left is playing the same game and it's it's self-destructive. It's basically suicidal. It's as suicidal for the left to become moralists as it is for Trump to ignore climate change or say, sure, it's real, but fuck you. We're going to do whatever we want anyway. That to me, that's, that should just be a dare to the left. The left should say, okay, if that's how you want to play it and then proceed and say, well, if we have nothing to lose, then the only response is to ratchet up the civil disobedience to, do as much on, you know, social media sabotage as possible. Uh, Zizek, in his new book, although I read it in an op-ed, sort of excerpted, talking about how the key to the Russian Revolution was, historically it was understood, you know, you gain this mass of people, you go storm parliament, take over the palace and all that stuff. Trotsky's genius was to recognize, no, what we do is we aggregate a thousand engineers, <clears throat> And, ha and send out these cells of strikes to be strike forces uh, to take over all the infrastructure. And so with a thousand people, you take over the whole country. And it worked. And so Zizek's saying we should mobilize strike forces of hackers and engineers to occupy these positions of digital power because we're, as we live in this increasingly digitized world, we should be trying to take this back. And he says, if, you know, if that sounds too extreme we should ask ourselves what are the these corporations who are aligned with the state or working behind the scenes already with the state and not just the US state all all foreign governments etc um <laughs> that being the case they're already playing so dirty in such a way that we we can't even see it that who why shouldn't we be pushing the same you know essentially like reverse the tactics on them and again, a lot of, and he's saying like hackers, whistleblowers, leakers, um, you know, computer engineers, et cetera. If, if it's true that this society as we know it is over in maybe five to 10 to 20 years, then we really have nothing to lose. If we continue to, you know, blind ourselves, blinder ourselves after this, as some have suggested. So Zizek had written an essay almost, you know, eight years ago about, Somebody was point. He was quoting someone as pointing out that <clears throat> as societies begin to fall, the response will not be increased action, but people will blinder themselves to the reality of their situation. So we have a choice. Thankfully, the scientific community has decided to say in no uncertain terms what's really happening. And so, if we choose to ignore it, that's a choice. Now, the problem for action is if people are desperate to eat, desperate you know, keep a roof over their heads and keep food in children's, their children's mouths, can we expect them to resist? I say yes. I say we can't rely on victimhood as uh, an excuse, as a reason for inaction. Now, I might not have a strategy or an organizational principle to work with as a beginning, but we have to abandon the idea that we're powerless because we aren't. If we weren't powerless, there would be no need for all this propaganda. If we weren't powerless, they wouldn't cut 
food stamps. They wouldn't cut Social Security. They wouldn't cut Medicare and Medicaid because those things make people strong. Who are the biggest voting block in the country? It's elderly people who are on Medicaid. Why? Because they have fixed incomes that can support them. And that stability allows them to be politically active. They have arguably the least physical energy of any demographic. Well, not even arguably. Yet they're the ones who are, they're the movers and the shakers on the ground. There's no reason that we can't do the same thing. And so (laughs) that doesn't mean everybody has to be out on the streets every hour of every day. But we have to stop relating to ourselves as as victims of circumstance and start understanding that if we don't fight to beat this thing back, we're all doomed. And their children's futures are unfortunately becoming a fantasy on the level of Trump's surreal reality that he's inflicting on the country. You mentioned Mr. Robot, and that's something I've been wondering about for a long time now is, again, there's there have to be, just have to be, legions of of hackers and anonymous types out there trying to do some of this stuff but where are they at and i so i mean i'm I'm dismayed such that i feel like if these folks were able to infiltrate and to leak and to do all this stuff at the level we'd like them to or need them to they would have done it by now and i don't know if there's just all if there's just that much surveillance out there on behalf of the nsa cia and so on and so forth sort of keeping people in check no no so where are these guys at then? That's part of my question. The other thing is, again, to the Kanye point and, and other pop culture examples, I feel like I don't know how it I don't know what it means to me today that again, if if I don't feel the DSA or other so official leftists are really organized in the way they need to be, that all I can do is look to you know pop culture. We have Kanye or Kaepernick and the NFL, you know, the strongest private union in the country in, in many ways. Like, these are my sources of hope in some ways, and I don't know what it means that that's where I take uh, inspiration from for resisting is, you know, professional football players and, uh, you know, hip-hop artists and so on, but that's kind of what it's come to. And um, I guess I'm, on some level, again, I'm frustrated by that and annoyed. On another level, I think, well, that's that's great. They have a voice and they can you know, get this sort of agenda out there in the public and, and maybe no one else can in the same way. And so let, let's just be in solidarity with that, with Kanye, I guess, and with, with Colin Kaepernick, which I never thought I'd be saying, but here we are. Right. And I, t- to that point, um, <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's my general view is, and this is sort of stolen again from Zizek, but like in 2012, he wrote Living in the End Times and one of the things he talked about was like without a clear vision of the left, all we can do is look to art for inspiration for science from the future, as he calls it. So he views, uh, this is this Walter Benjamin quote about how art is a, is a message from the future and can only be decoded properly in some future time that may or may not materialize. Um, and so Zizek claims that that was what Occupy Wall Street was, was this sort of, uh, this letter from the future about what how things could be. Now, having been in New York City at the height of Occupy in October, what was it, 11th, October 15th or something, 2011, the moment when, um, you know, f- f- a few communist uh, sort of intellectual types were attending this idea of communism conference that happened to have been scheduled for New York during Occupy, um, what we were seeing, what what was so shocking to me, like we personally know some of the main organizers. They just happen to be people from where we're from, from North Dakota. Um, and so that, that in and of itself was, th- th- 
we could, I could see concretely how people, people who I had worked with were out there literally changing reality, um, in a very short amount of time, but walking the streets and seeing that was the night when they almost started a second occupation and the, it was clear that, um, and this became a topic of conversation within the, or debate or what have you within the conference itself was what, what happens if the left finds itself in a position to take power? What do we do then? And Zizek has written extensively about the, the risks here. So during the French revolution, Saint Jouis, who was, um, who was one of the, you know, central figures talked about how basically like, we're not, we're not like on some shining path to the future. We are, we are a boat in a storm and we're facing the abyss. And so, because all of this, you you start to, you start to truly dismantle reality. That becomes a terrifying prospect. And that's what was so shocking about that period in New York city. Uh, the time I was there was you could feel palpably that that abyss was opening. So this was not some like joyous event as such. It was reality itself is breaking apart. And so this can go either way. This can get worse or this can get better. And if, you know, if the rule of law breaks down, you know, for better or worse, and we can talk about the problem, the structural violence of this current rule of law in the U S but when the rule of law breaks down, really violent, horrifying things can start to happen. If, um, the correct moves aren't made and the vision, the ability of the left to have a vision of what to do and a way to execute that in times of crisis, we might add that then these strike forces of hackers and leakers, they're not just like, you know, I don't know, like the right might call them a contagion on society. They might be the way that society survives in the face of a cri uh, ecological crisis, right, a resource crisis, these are the only people who can help us to survive, and so <laughs> that's the other thing is we need to be able to shift our view of what the function of these people are. They're not simply um, people trying to agitate for a revolution, but people who are acknowledging that, as Zizek says, communism is no longer the name of a positive social vision; it names a problem. How do you deal with climate change that may displace hundreds of millions of people? Where are they going to live? How do you reestablish society? If we become a more nomadic culture globally, how does that work? Where do the resources come from? Who decides who goes where and how that plays out? How do we avoid civil wars? Um, <coughs> et cetera. So the, and, but the, th that being said, some of the amazing things about Occupy, what I was noticing at Zuccotti was when I was there, it wasn't this like very like sensual. And I mean that sort of like in terms of like feel goodery, that wasn't like this hippie thing going on. It was very banal. The idea, like as soon as you got to the park, you could just sense, oh, I can literally say anything I want and I can debate anybody about anything at any time. And that's a space that doesn't exist in most of society. And so that alone is terrifying to the power structure, such that they'll throw whatever 20 intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies on the premises and surveil everyone and infil trying to infiltrate as much as possible and agitate for violence, the state doing that undercover, et cetera. Um, but additionally, 
the night, I think it was Saturday night, when they were deciding whether or not to take over Union Square Park and there was a second General Assembly held, I was seeing boxes of pizza, like stacks of pizza boxes showing up. Like th that things were just appearing to support everyone in a material way, that it sort of worked itself out because there was this general view, um, you know, wherever the money was coming from, people were into this and they supported it. Now, <clears throat> is that sustainable in the long term? It may be. And part of how it may be is the reason it felt like a letter from the future is because with rapidly increasing technology, technological capabilities, if those capabilities are decentralized and we can increase um, agricultural yields to unforeseen levels with using radically res less resources at scale, uh, if we can automate all this, which, I mean, at this point, we probably just can. I, it's not even a when. It's just that we can and we're not all of these things become possible and it becomes possible to make a modular society, a decentralized society. So um, this show supports nuclear power of all sorts because it's the only way to go carbon negative. And when I say carbon negative, people sometimes get confused. The reason it's carbon negative is not because it takes no carbon to build a nuclear power plant, but because a nuclear power plant creates so much power that it can freely power efforts to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. So <laughs> nuclear can power um, fairly cheaply once the technology is uh, made smaller and passively safe. So the reason nuclear power plants are so huge now is we use light water reactors, which require massive amounts of pressurized casings. And that's why you get situations like Fukushima where meltdowns occur because if there's a catastrophic event where all power is lost then it's not passively safe it needs the, the there needs to be constant inflows of water cooling and heat exchangers with passively safe so uh elysium <clears throat> industries uh elysium is the name of the company i think it's industries they ed feel who's um a true futuristic radical in the sense that he works on sodium chloride reactors so you can heat salt and make it molten at which point you can have massive uh massively efficient small scale or large scale nuclear power plants that are low pressure such that you don't need all these huge buildings and stuff and then being passively safe at a certain point if, if power somehow is totally gone from the system uh everything just becomes inert and fission a chain reaction stops so the heat stops so there's no meltdown so there's no hydrogen explosions like what happened in because what happens in what happened in fukushima people don't understand the the with with the inability to cool the uranium the fissile material the uranium it got so hot that it started ripping the water molecules apart and created all this hydrogen gas and then it got sparked and that's what caused the explosions and then unfortunately created this radioactive environment such that no diver could survive going in to just turn a crank. Whereas if had we had robots back then, like we do now, it probably wouldn't have been a problem. Uh, well, it wouldn't have caused the devastation that it caused in terms of just this like shit show of a environmental issue around the power plants. Anyway, um, <clears throat> my point with, molten salt reactors is they're not known about we've had this technology since the 60s the u.s invented it uh got shit canned probably because fossil fuel interests had too much money to make and free energy for everyone right was not uh on the docket 
Um, there are a multitude of factors, but <clears throat> with these small modular reactors, if you can fit a nuclear reactor uh, that can't really be used to make nuclear weapons, so that's not an issue because of how they do the science, and they can use radioactive waste for fuel to burn, um, you put a small nuclear reactor in a shipping container, put it on a truck, you can send it anywhere, send it to the desert, and if it's properly scaled, it can run uh, it can run power for decades for free. Now, if you can do that and you have nomadic societies, then maybe we survive. But only if those are already built and distributed before the crash happens, before the collapse really takes hold. And so <clears throat> the way out has to be decentralized. It has to be technologically driven and amplified because this large-scale agriculture that we have will not hold with climate change at the scale and level that we see it now. And that's why all these dire reports are talking about food insecurity. Well, we don't have food insecurity if we have modular power and indoor farms, vertical farms. But those that technology has to be built out. And we have to understand ourselves as heading toward radical change. Um, again, it's very few people on the left who are talking about any of this stuff that I just said, as that I can tell. You know, as far as I can tell, it's just me and a few of my friends. And it should be much more than that. It should be everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, the, paradoxically, Trump's administration is loosening the regulations on new nuclear technology, which will facilitate this, thank God. Um, that being the case, we're, we're running up against timetables that may not permit any kind of smooth... Well, there won't be a smooth transition, but loss of life could amplify in orders of magnitude much higher. Uh, my friend, who's really into nuclear stuff, just sent uh, a statement from the Department of Energy that they're stopping. Trump's also decided to stop sharing nuclear tech with the Chinese, which is, which is suicidal because if China builds out 264 gigawatts of um, coal, which they're planning to, which is basically the size of the whole country in terms of their power usage, that may doom us all. Right. <laughs> I've got no follow-up to that because that's, that's a downer. Um, other than to say, um, Michael Lewis, he's the Moneyball guy. He's got a new book out. and I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called The Fifth Risk. I haven't read it yet, but it's... Um, to the point I was making earlier about dismantling government, um, he goes into detail about the degree to which the Trump administration has just been, I mean, quite openly hostile to the federal government and is either just, you know, not filling positions at all these departments of state, uh, commerce, energy, transportation, all that sort of thing, the judiciary, and or people are just, as, as you pointed out earlier, refuse to work for him or with him such that we don't have anyone doing anything in Washington and around the country. Um, and that's, again, is that something the left has been trying to get uh, enacted for, for decades? Not in that same way, uh, but the effect um, is sort of similar, I guess, in a way. Um, and that's the sort of stuff that scares me. Not, um, I, and again, I don't know, to your point then about the hackers and the uh, folks on the left who are interested in technology, I'm wondering where they're at and why they're not doing more. Um, or maybe they are, and I'm just not seeing it. Um, I hope that's the case. But. Well, I think there's, now that you mentioned that, it hadn't occurred to me exactly, but <clears throat> I think there's a, 
sort of a double-edged sword when it comes to the amount of information that we have access to. Like people are highly technologically minded. Um, people who think like engineers are thinking like far out in the future in terms of like what the implications of what they're considering are, or, you know, just looking for the problems with it. Um, and it's easy to see, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the problems and see like, oh, we're fucked. It right. becomes cynical. Um, unfortunately, that cynic cynicism gets us to where we are now. The clown in the White House, um, and I don't mean that in, again, I don't mean that moralistically. I just mean a clown, like someone who's, like a circus clown is a dangerous figure. There's a reason children are terrified of them. That's right. Like, they're not really funny. It's sort of this v viciousness. Uh, right. Undermining, under underlying it. And I think, ki you know, kids obviously just immediately sense that right. stuff. Um, and they can't, like, engage with it cognitively because they don't have that ability. And so clown in the White House in that da more dangerous sense. Uh, and an ineffectual left. Yeah, where are the hackers? Why haven't they self-organized? What happened to Anonymous's political dimension? Um, there's now they, they were infiltrated, of course, by the FBI and informed on. And so maybe people don't trust each other, et cetera, et cetera. But we have new tools now which makes it a lot easier to avoid detection to become more decentralized even than before. Um, so it's hard to say, I, I don't have an answer, um, except just like a lack of hope would be the only idea I could have. Cause if we roll it back to 2011 during, um, I was getting flack from tankies, uh, Marxist, Leninist, Maoist types, hardline ideologues on the left, uh, who, when I pointed out that <clears throat> that a not, that the Tunisian revolution had been, they they were openly thanking Anonymous for their help because during these revolutions, when the government was cutting off the internet, um, Anonymous was using these crazy like they put they there were like they were like running relays th through the Mediterranean Sea and using ham radio to like get information out onto twitter and like training people giving people informational packets about you know how to run first aid how to do street tactics how to how to set up a sort of quasi internet um in the interim when the internet had been shut down by the government um th this is like in the same you know palestinian solidarity i remember we had an occupy Graham forks meeting where i was reading the tahrir solidarity statement with occupy wall street where we were seeing um and it should be noted that occupy wall street stole their tactics from the third world this is a point i was making at that communism conference to one of the one of the presenters was if you want to talk about you know true universality let's talk about the fact that um the the western left was looking to the supposedly backwards middle east for inspirations for how to run their own resistance movements that's a good sign i think right. we should be talking about that constantly and not to interrupt but then we see something similar in 2016 with um in north dakota with standing rock and sort of this gathering of american indians and other indigenous people sort of paving the way for and inspiring folks on the moderate left to, to sort of get organized or, or whatever. And I, I don't know if the outcome has been very, um, we haven't seen quite a lot of um, movement on that. Uh, but nonetheless, um, we had the 2011 Occupy, we had the 2016 um, Standing Rock stuff. 
and the connection to the Arab Spring um, as a series of examples showing us that, to your point, that, that this can be done if people just get organized. Right, and that we can, we find hope in these moments. So, like, um, when, like, you know, there's always this question of freedom philosophically and historically and on the left and otherwise, what, what constitutes freedom? Zizek's argument is that we're free in the struggle for freedom. So as we fight for the freedom, that's where we find ourselves to be free. This sort of um, dialectical materialism of as I interject myself into the situation, th that changes the situation itself. What seemed hopeless or impossible all, all of a sudden becomes taken for granted uh, as, as doable or happening. And so the the idea that like why is it so, so i'll get to the i'll add to this with regard to standing rock in a second because i think it's important and it's a, again a structural homology there or parallel if we find ourselves engaging in resistance movements and finding solidarity with people across the globe with radically different you know religions or cultures or whatever Obviously, none of these things are insurmountable. Obviously, these things can change on a dime. And again, and that was 2011, 2012. We had no internet like we have now. I mean, that was a that internet back then is a joke compared to what it is now. And it was still powerful. It, so anyway, the tanky was attacking me for he was basically trying to call bullshit on the Tunisians, claiming that Anonymous helped them. And there's video of it, like. It's not, you know, it's not hidden or anything. Um, but the, so that you have this like dynamic of like, I, I, I don't like calling it dialectical because I think that's, there's a lot of historical weight around what people understand dialectics to mean. And I don't think it's correct. Baggage, yeah. yeah. Like they think it's this sort of thesis, antithesis, synthesis thing, movement. And that's not, that's non Hegelian. It's basically not even Marxist, um, but it's been interpreted that way. Uh, but what I would say about dialectics is more along Zizek's reading of Hegel through Lacan, which is of of the mind that, like, for Hegel, you know, any any sort of proposition contains its opposite. But the the point is not to f come to some higher synthesis, but to recognize that for Hegel, absolute you know, the absolute concerns, the awareness that these things are never like, um, non, non-biased, non, uh, conflictual in opposed. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and so, but the, so the way out is to, to accept that these things, that these oppositions are the result of the process of reason and that that's, that's ontologically true, let's say. And so, um, my point is, so this is what I wanted to avoid calling dialectical, but we have like this explosion in the Middle East of the most progressive social movement of the century, arguably, um, at least the most widespread. And in, in so doing they're they're more, you know, more modern than we are in, politically in that in the um at for at a formal level of what they're doing but then they they're were by us helping them we change the dynamic of what is the relationship between the middle east and the west and so <clears throat> or you know north africa and the west um tr you know 
sidestepping the militarism and the colonialism and saying, no, we want to help you do what you're doing because you're better at it than we are. And then we took the same form and applied it in the West. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> that's how solidarity works. That's what changes reality. That's what, that's what's revealed. It was a sort of its own moment of whistleblowing in the sense of like, we don't need any of this. We don't need to rely on traditional or postmodern descriptions of clash of civilizations because it's all bullshit on the street. We're all the same and we all understand ourselves to be the same. So long as we know that when they struggle for their freedom, that's us struggling for our freedom. When we help them and they, you know, they're in solidarity with us, we win and the oligarchs lose, or at least they're threatened. And so <laughs> I think with Standing Rock, one of the historical legacies that's probably not um, as apparent in terms of how it's discussed is the, so Standing Rock was historic in part because I mean, definitely historic in terms of anything that's happened in North Dakota at that scale before um, in terms of mobilizations, but historic also in the sense that I think it was the first time that so many different indigenous tribes across the globe had sort of sent people to one place. But what's not, what's sort of buried is that in the seventies, there was a similar move among indigenous populations where this, this attempt to unify, to organize laterally from, you know, the, from Canada down to the Southern tip of South America. Are you referring to American Indian movement? Uh, AIM or well, not, broader? it was more than that sure. because not everybody was associated with AIM. AIM was specific at that point, specific to Pine Ridge, um, in South Dakota. That was like the center of it. But the, but that there was this sort of Congress of subaltern people across the globe, but specifically the um, people in indigenous communities in the um, North and South America were trying to organize North to South. And that's the sort of thing that the, for, for whatever reason, the American left is just, it just is outside of the purview of, what we think is possible incapable of doing right i mean there was a there was sort of a temporary um like 10 minutes there was like a temporary moment of resurgence of these global south movements penetrating the u.s at the wto protests and that sort of thing um but and they were they were explicitly saying you know we're taking from the the global south their tactics because they work better than what we're doing so that was good but besides that like <clears throat> there's not a move in the u.s in the west largely to say okay the u.s left is constantly like you know has i mean up until now it's a little bit different since 2015 but even up to occupy and past occupy okay where do we look for inspiration how do we organize ourselves what do we do um not prior standing rock definitely no very almost almost without exception just no interaction between working with progressive or you know left movements within indigenous communities in the u.s right uh as well as which is to me as soon as i discovered it much more troubling haiti has a radical history of um labor organizing and like very futuristic democracy that was just crushed by the u.s over and over again haiti's what 150 miles from Miami at most 
Cuba's 75 miles, or not even that long, that, that far, you know, a communist country. Uh, then you have the whole Bolivian revolution <clears throat> with um, Chavez and um, Morales and even, Ecuador, yeah. yeah, even Ecuador. Um, this is sort of just cut off from all U.S., like even the self-conscious left, the self-aware leftists, unapologetic communists have no sense of this. I'd, I'd messaged one I was sort of interacting with on Facebook, ran it by this person, like, why aren't we trying to organize laterally? And she was like, I don't know. You know, it, it, she's like, I agree with you, but I just, nobody's, because I was like, is anybody even writing about this? And it wasn't happening. And I'm not sure why. Like, I don't have a good answer for why. Um, but we have to break, if the society is becoming decentralized, then we have to break our own unconscious nationalism on the left in the U.S., in, in you know, in, in Northern Europe. And I'm not there, so I can't speak to what that looks like. But my sense is there's not this... Similar moves are not happening between North Africa and France or, you know, former colonies and the, the left, the progressive people within the coloni formerly colonized countries. I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but if we start moving in that direction, since the Internet is non-local, non-linear and not in some ways, not even not even linear temporally, like we can plug into anything at any time. Uh <laughs> If we don't start moving in that direction, we're truly fucked. But it, it it's incumbent upon us to just break through, just to reject all of this, this sense of the ideological slavery that we've apparently just by default bought into, this cynical reason that is only pushes us further and further to the right. Without breaking with that and trying to understand that we can organize with anybody at any time and should be that labor unions should be organizing with indigenous people who are already organizing with environmentalists, but environmentalists should be organizing with women's groups and Black Lives Matter, etc., etc., to find lateral connections of solidarity between disparate struggles uh, under the guise of <laughs> the sort of nascent new feminism in the labor movement that's already existing as probably the umbrella under which to organize everything else. If, if that's not our move, I don't see a path forward. Mm -hmm.